Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, we saw, of course, the very long episode, all of chapter 10, half of chapter 11, in which Peter goes to Cornelius, and Cornelius is converted. And now, the second part of chapter 11 immediately transitions to showing us what happens when Gentiles join the church. And Luke draws for us a picture of the first Jewish-Gentile, ethnically diverse church. That church is found in the city of Antioch. So listen to what Luke tells us about the church. Verse 19, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in those days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power that's seen in this diverse church, and above all, for the unity in Christ that is seen in this church. Lord, make our church look like this insofar as it ought to, based on our time, our place, our position in the world, help us to see this church and to love this church because your Son loves this church. We thank you, Father, for building your church in Antioch and in many, many other places. Help build our church this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke resumes the story that he dropped, the thread that he dropped in chapter 8, verse 3. If you go back that far, remember Stephen is killed. He's stoned to death. Devout men carry Stephen to his death. And then, well, chapter 8, verse 1, at that time a great persecution arose and the church was scattered. Verse 4, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So Luke goes back to that. He goes back three chapters to chapter 8. Picks up that story again with the words, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled. He's showing us what happened to those people who left the Jerusalem church to flee persecution and went out preaching the word. Where did they go? What he mostly settles on, he tells us some of their destinations, but he tells us primarily what happened in Antioch. So the church is broken out of the ghetto. It's gone to the Gentiles. What now? The answer to that is a healthy, diverse church. Church with diverse places.
place, diverse people, and diverse power that honors Christ, that honors the Lord of the church. And this is a picture of a healthy church. So the first thing that really stands out in this passage is the diversity of place, all the traveling that's going on. Those who left Jerusalem traveled to Phoenicia, which is kind of an interesting archaic term. We would know this as Lebanon. They would have known it as uh, the province of Palestine or perhaps the province of Syria. But Luke uses this term from 700 years previously, Phoenicia, a.k.a. Tyre and Sidon. They traveled up the Mediterranean coast directly to the north of the land of Israel. They also went out to the island of Cyprus. We'll talk more about Cyprus in a few weeks. There, Cyprus is the third largest island in the Mediterranean. Everybody should know what the largest one is. Sicily and the Sardinia is number two. Cyprus is number three. Uh, modern Cyprus has about 1.2 million people on it. 1.8 million, something like that. It's an important island. Well, they traveled there. And they traveled to Antioch. And Luke mentions Antioch, and that's where he's going to camp. In some ways, for the next five chapters or so, the Antioch church becomes one of the central churches in the book of Acts after the Jerusalem church. So what is Antioch? Antioch is a city in Syria, maybe 12, 15 miles inland, up the Orontes River from the Mediterranean. Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So, again, interestingly, they go to the third largest island, they go to the third largest city. So in the modern United States, our biggest city is, of course, New York. Our second city is Los Angeles. So parallel in the Roman Empire by Rome, the largest city, and Alexandria, the second city. The warm one with nice weather, where the cool kids live. And then the third city in our country is Chicago, being threatened every day by Houston, but Houston hasn't gotten there yet. Chicago is our third city. Antioch is the third city of the Roman Empire. So you can think of Antioch as the Chicago of the Roman Empire. It's not as cool as the biggest. It's not as nice as the second biggest. The weather is, you know, known for being horrible. But it's the third biggest, and it has a lot of the facilities, a lot of the, the cultural power, the economic power that the top two cities have. That's Antioch. That's Chicago. So they travel to Antioch. They go back and forth, and there's much more traveling in this passage. We have immigrants in the next verse, men from Cyprus, so again, that island, and from Cyrene, which we know today as Libya. Most of the way across the Mediterranean, out there in North Africa. And these men were immigrants. They had moved to Jerusalem at some point to live in the holy city, and then they got kicked out of Jerusalem, and so they keep on going, and they go to Antioch, and there they start evangelizing Gentiles. So again, power to travel. Men from halfway across the empire who are kicked out of Jerusalem and go to Antioch 
more traveling in verse 22. Barnabas goes from Jerusalem to Antioch. In verse 25, Barnabas goes up to Turkey or to Asia Minor. He goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. Then prophets come from Jerusalem to Antioch in verse 27. And then at the end of the passage, Barnabas and Saul go back to Jerusalem. In 11 verses, the globe is pretty thoroughly trotted on. People are going everywhere in this portrayal of a healthy church. Why does Luke talk so much about the frequent flyer miles, about the travel, going here, there, and everywhere? What's the point? The point is the Antioch church is connected to the Jerusalem church. They're not two different churches. They're the same church with people circulating back and forth all the time. God's people are not divided by place. They are united even though they're in different places. The Antioch church and the Jerusalem church are part uh, parts of the global church. The word is not static. The word progresses. The church is not static. The church moves. The church is in circulation. Of course, this is true today. Almost all of us in this church, pretty much everyone over five, six years old, has been in other churches at some point in their life. Why is that? Well, most of us have lived in other states, been in other places, participated with other believers in worshiping Christ all over this planet, certainly all over this country, all over this state. People move, people go, people come. That's the nature of the church. And Luke is telling us that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. The Jerusalem church takes its finest and sends them to Antioch. And when people in our congregation are called away, when they move to other cities, when they're called away to other states, when they have to go, when other people come, we welcome them, we send off those who are going with our blessing and say... Go serve Christ elsewhere like you did here. Go bless another congregation like you blessed this congregation. That's the reality of life in the church. So just as there's no Christian food, as Peter had to learn last week, so there's no Christian spot. Oh, I live in Jerusalem. I'm a good Christian here, but I move away. You know, I move to Las Vegas and I lose my Christianity. No, you can be Christian in Vegas. You can be Christian in Gillette. You can be Christian in Maui. There's no world capital of Christianity. There's no Salt Lake City. There's no Mecca. There's no place where the real committed Christians go live. There just isn't. Just as there is no special diet that the real committed Christians eat. That's not what our faith is about. So this Antioch church has power to travel. The people in the church come. The people in the church go. The people in the church are willing to let their best and brightest go. We'll see that at the beginning of chapter 13 when they send off Barnabas and Saul to go evangelize around the eastern Mediterranean. The church is not saying, well, these are the people we have and we cling to them like glue and we tell them, no, you can't go. Church has open hands, and when people need to go, 
We send them off and say, go with our blessing. God will take you and use you to minister somewhere else in his kingdom. And that's a good thing. We don't resent that. We celebrate that. The Jerusalem church took a major hit. It sent its best people away. And that was so that they could bless and build this Antioch church. So there's diverse places. There's diverse people. Of course, the first biggest diversity in this church is Jew versus Greek. The first uh, exiles, the first dispersed people from Jerusalem, verse 19, preached to no one but the Jews only. I don't know how Jews dressed in the first century, but to be anachronistic, if they didn't see the yarmulke, if they didn't see the hat, if they didn't see the fringes, they said, forget it. Not talking to him. They looked for those signs of Judaism and they only went after those people. But some of these others, the immigrants from Cyprus and Cyrene who had come to Jerusalem to live, they had a different idea. They started talking to Greeks too. He's not a Jew. Oh well, he still needs Jesus. She's not a Jew. She still needs Jesus. So what Peter was doing independently in chapter 10 and 11 finding a Gentile, baptizing a Gentile, these Jerusalem refugees are also doing here in verse 20. They're coming to Antioch, and they're finding Greeks there, and they are evangelizing those Greeks. This first hybrid Jewish-Gentile church is the product of persecution and refugees. The people are kicked out of Jerusalem, and they flee all over that part of the eastern Mediterranean. But when they do, they say, Greeks need this message too. Let's tell the Greeks. Even in what seems to be disaster, even in the persecution over Stephen, Christ reigns. His message goes out, his word goes out, his people go out and make more converts. So there's Jews and Greeks in this church, and it's a blessed church. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turn to the Lord. This has been the experience of missionaries throughout history that unreached people, once you can get them to understand what you're talking about, which usually takes a while, lots of years, once they get it, they're extremely receptive. Wow, this is amazing. And that's what happened with the Greeks of Antioch. They were extremely receptive. God blessed the turn to the Gentiles. Also within this church are two other groups, prophets and teachers. As Luke puts it in the beginning of verse of beginning of chapter 13, now in the church that was at Antioch there were prophets and teachers. He doesn't use that phrase exactly in this passage, but he says there were prophets and he describes Barnabas and Saul as teaching in the church. Now Prophets, what are prophets? Prophets are people who speak the word of God. Who can say, like the Old Testament prophets, thus says the Lord, and then give an accurate oracle. Now there's been discussion within the global church recently over whether New Testament prophecy is equivalent to Old Testament prophecy. The Old Testament says there's a simple test for a prophet. If he's from God, he will be 100% accurate. 
If he's 99% accurate, he's not a prophet. Stone him. Either he's 100, it's all or nothing. You're completely right, or you're totally wrong. Well, there are some sectors of the contemporary church that say, no, no, no. That test is gone. Prophets no longer need to be 100% right. 50% right is fine. Mostly right <coughs> works. And they look at Agabus's prophecy later in Acts, and they say, if you look at this, some of the details seem to be a little off. You know, Agabus binds Paul with his own belt and says, the Romans are going to bind you like this. And then Paul goes to Jerusalem and the Romans don't tie him up with his own belt. They tie him up with something else. And therefore, Agabus gave an inaccurate prophecy. Now, in my mind, that's pedantic silliness. The standard for New Testament prophecy is the same as the standard for Old Testament prophecy. All or nothing. 100% or you're out. But anyway, wherever you fall, whatever you think about that, in this church, there were prophets because they didn't have the New Testament. At this point, if any of the New Testament had been written, it was the book of James, but probably not even that. So they couldn't read from the Gospels. They couldn't read from the letters of Paul. They didn't have the book of Revelation or the book of Hebrews. And they needed their faith sustained, so there were prophets who brought fresh words from God on a regular basis in the church. But there were also teachers like Barnabas, like Saul, who explained what was already known, what was already written down. And in the church today, preeminently there are teachers, people who are able to tell you what's in the Bible. Not saying, I don't know whether this is in the Bible, but God is whispering in my head and telling me that would be prophecy. Teaching is taking what's already written down and explaining it. No, teachers take the canon of Scripture and communicate it. Many great teachers of the church have lived and died and left a lot of good books. You probably own a few of them. Certainly you know somebody who does. And most of us say, I can buy the books, but when do I read them? I might have a large pile somewhere in my house of great Christian books that would contain a lot of great Christian teaching. And that's why God gives teachers to tell you what's in the books. The goal, God's goal, I think, quite honestly, is for every Christian to have a Christian teacher, a real live person that they can go to and get their questions answered and hear the Word of God from. That's what the Antioch church had. Barnabas was there, Saul was there. The most important factor in raising sheep is herd health. My cousin put it right, you make, or my family's farm, you make $10 or so on each animal. So how much does a vet visit cost? Well, significantly more than $10. Herd health is the most important factor. You have to keep all of them healthy because one vet visit is worth more than many sheep. Well, what's the most important factor in herd health? The most important factor in herd health is nutrition. What is the animal eating? 
And of course, the same goes for all of us. We all know that if you pig out on restaurant food and sugar, you can be sick for a very long time. You don't get good nutrition. So you can make the biggest difference in the life and productivity of your flock simply by what and how you choose to feed it. Same goes for the church. Prophets and teachers, their job in the church is to keep the flock well-fed so that it doesn't get sick, so that the flock doesn't fall into moral and theological error. A bunch of starving sheep are sheep who wander off into silliness, foolish beliefs, moral failure, theological ridiculousness. That's what happens when you're an underfed Christian. Well, there were prophets and teachers in Antioch precisely to prevent that from happening. They were there to nourish the flock with gospel meat straight out of the word of God and to keep the flock in good health by doing that. So Saul and Barnabas did that. We know they did that because for a whole year, verse 26, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. They were there, they were present in the church, and each week they taught God's people. And they were so effective at God teaching God's people that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. How did we get our name, right? This word Christian only appears two times in the book of Acts. And it doesn't appear very often in the New Testament. This is certainly not the New Testament's preferred way of designating us. Right? What do we call ourselves? What does the New Testament call Christians usually? Brothers. The brothers, that's usually by far the most common way that Christians are referred to, but the citizens of Antioch saw the members of this Antioch church and said, they are all about Jesus. They can't stop talking, thinking, praying, worshiping this Christ fellow. That means, well, we'll call them Christians. They're all about Christ. They get called Christians. Paul and Barnabas taught to the point where it was obvious that these were Christians. And that should be the goal of every church. To teach the flock, to evangelize them, to make them so well fed that everyone who meets them says, Christian, this person is about Christ. It's obvious to me. So then we have not just prophets and teachers, including this prophet Agabus, who comes into the story in a little bit, but we also have Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas is sent up from the Jerusalem church to inspect, and he's glad about what he sees. He is the son of encouragement, and when he comes and sees all these people being converted, verse 23, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should cling to the Lord. Well, that's a solid message. Cling to the Lord, everybody. That's a great message. There's nothing wrong with that message except it's not enough. We need to go further. You need to teach the people and explain why to cling to the Lord, what clinging to the Lord looks like, how that works. And Barnabas quickly realized that he had shot his homiletical bolt, that the message of cling to the Lord, while a good message was, you know, they needed more. And Barnabas said, I don't have more, that's my sermon, but I know where to get more. 
And so Barnabas goes up to Tarsus to find Saul. I know just who this church needs. You could certainly imagine that. That you have a faithful elder, a faithful pastor in your church, and he says, I've taught you everything I've got. But one of my old friends, somebody I know, who lives far away, I think I can go find him, and I think I can persuade him to come be the pastor here. Well, that's what Barnabas does. He finds Saul, and he brings him back to Antioch. And Saul then is not just an encourager, his gifts are in theology, his gifts are in teaching, and he lays a solid foundation in the Antioch church, with a, spending a whole year there with Barnabas, teaching God's people. So there are two totally different teachers, very different men, different messages, different styles, no doubt, but they work together to serve God in this church. So they had diverse power unified around glorifying Christ by teaching his people. So finally, a few other things in the chapter, the diverse power of the church. They had power to evangelize. The refugees from Jerusalem come, they start talking to people they meet in Antioch, and there's a revival. The hand of the Lord was with them. A great number believed and turned to the Lord. The church also had power to inspect. The Jerusalem church sent Barnabas when they heard about it to go to Antioch and essentially to find out what was going on, it seems. And when Barnabas comes and sees, yes, Gentiles are being converted, he doesn't say, wait, wait a second. Who gave you permission to do this? Are you sure Gentiles belong in the church? Barnabas doesn't throw a fit. No, Barnabas is glad. He has power to inspect, and when he sees what they're doing, he endorses it. Now, unfortunately, there are also times when the church has to use that power to inspect, and it goes and looks at a ministry and says, no. No, we can't endorse what's going on here. In fact, we're going to have to pull our funding from this. We're going to pull our support from this. This project, this ministry, has to be judged a failure. Sometimes through the error, the fault of the people in charge, sometimes because it just doesn't seem to be going anywhere. When I was in the OPC, what, 10 years ago, a painful decision was made there to stop, as a denomination, funding missions in Japan. We've done it. We've been there over 50 years, and we have nothing to show for it, and so we're going to go find a more productive field. The church has that power, that power to inspect and to say, yes, let's do more of this, or no, we need to stop putting resources here. Barnabas inspected, he was a good man, and he didn't throw a fit. He said, yes, this is right. He also, the church had power to persevere. Barnabas said, cling to the Lord, and they did that. They, cling, they clung to the Lord, those who left Jerusalem, despite being persecuted for their faith. Those in Antioch clung to the Lord, despite not exactly knowing a whole lot. They were baby Christians. What they knew of the Lord was what they had picked up in a two or three hour conversation with this refugee from Jerusalem. But it didn't matter. They clung to the Lord. Well, finally, the, the last part of this, Agabus' prophecy of the famine and stuff, 
the determination to send relief money to Jerusalem, what is that about? Well, that's Luke's favorite theme that we've seen before, power over money. They're new Christians, but we know that they're real Christians because their wallet doesn't rule them. They're able to take their wallet and show it who's boss and say, no, we are giving money to strangers we never met. We're sending relief to Jerusalem. And they send it by the hand of Barnabas and Saul, thus proving that Saul is spiritually trustworthy. He can handle money. You can give him a big sum and he will bring it safely to its destination. We all know people who are trustworthy over money. And we also know people where we would hesitate. Yeah, I don't really want to give you a bag with $13,000 in cash in it. Saul and Barnabas have power over money, as does the congregation. The Gentile Christians are not slaves to money. Are you a spiritual baby, or do you have power over money? And then finally, the power to unify. They all bore the name Christians. There weren't Saulites, Barnabites, Antiochenes, Cypriots, Cyrenians, Jerusalemites, That's not what people saw when they saw the church. They didn't say, oh my goodness, what a weird amalgamation of people from every corner of the empire. The disciples were first called polyglots or mixed up people. No, the disciples were first called Christians. They were all unified under Jesus in the first diverse church. So, it all came from believing in Christ. Jew and Greek. Prophet and teacher. Saul and Barnabas. Power to inspect. Power over money. Power to evangelize. Power to unify. And our church has access to the same Lord who blessed the Antioch church like this. He can and will bless our church this way too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this church in Antioch the travels they engaged in, the disciples that they made, the power that they showed over money, the diversity of Jews and Greeks, prophets and teachers, Cypriots, Cyrenians, Antiochenes, Jerusalemites, all worshiping Christ together, all known corporately as Christians. Lord, we pray this for our own church and for every church throughout the world, that the people within it would not primarily be known by their origin, their ethnicity, but by their devotion, their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Make that true of us, we pray in his name. Amen.